Welcome to To Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with executive director, Sarah Pasquale. Hey, everybody. And so we are uh, walking through some more of Chronicles today, and then we'll uh, finish up uh, Matthew and get into a little bit more of Acts uh, this week. And so, um, but we're picking up Chronicles. We finish all those genealogies that were a bit tenuous or Mm -hmm. tedious, I guess it should be the right word. And then uh, now we're at David uh, being anointed the king here. So like like we've probably noticed, these are parallel accounts uh, between Samuel and uh, the chronicler. Which is kind of cool. We're going to be jumping back and forth in some of this reading, but... Since you've we've talked about the context and the purpose of each book, it's kind of fun to compare and contrast what each author emphasizes. Not that one is more true than the other, but they're focusing on different points because they want to illustrate different things. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly, um, and as we talked about in the opening, there's certainly this unity idea towards uh, the chronicler of of bringing together the tribes, bringing together um, with with some goal around the temple, and so um, that that's all playing out here. And we see that, and we see them even say at times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led us out and brought us and brought in Israel. And there's sort of the shepherding language to that. There's um, it, and there's a little bit of question because it didn't seem like the the northern kingdom necessarily followed David, but um, there's there's still this language of of David as their shepherd and Mm -hmm. um, them ultimately being united uh, between Israel and uh, Judah. Yeah. I really paused and on the shepherd language as well, because we haven't seen a ton of that. I mean, we've seen a lot of shepherds, but not the idea of shepherd and King together as often. So I think, you know, I mean, part of what this is getting us ready for is that David is, is inaugurating the line of Judah on the throne as the shepherd. And then Jesus will see consummate that as the true and the very best shepherd king. And so I hope as you start or notice like the shepherd piece, you thought about David as shepherd, but thought about this idea of shepherding overall through Israel. Super cool. So uh, they find a place to to have their capital city uh, and they take over Jerusalem uh, and Joab and David basically help build up the city uh, becomes this named after David the city of David. And so, um, yeah, you have this, this taking of Jerusalem, which will become a a pretty focal point of geography uh, from that point on out. Yeah, I mean, one thing you're going to read a lot in Chronicles is this idea of all Israel. And the author here is emphasizing that Israel is united. They're one people. And so as they come back from exile, when they're reading this, they want to be united again. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's noteworthy that we read here that David grew as, in power and strength as king, not because of who he was, but because the Lord of hosts was with him. Yep. Um, and so let's stop for a second and remember that David has walked more or less faithfully, not without mistakes, but more or less faithfully before the Lord for 15 years ish with this promise that he would be King and he didn't see it, but he remained steadfast and obedient to God. And so again, an encouragement for us with whatever we hope our future holds, or um, if some of us have some sort of prophetic word from God of what we'll be, it doesn't, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be faithful where God has placed us in that moment. Yep. And then we get a bit of a roll call of some of the warriors that are uh, with David. Uh, it's sort of like, hey, now that we're in Jerusalem, let's let's go back and tell some of the stories of some of these people that have brought us here. Um, and you hear about some of the people that will take over some governance uh, within within the temple or within uh, David's sort of governance, uh, the different roles that, that will play out. Yeah. Um, and there's some interesting stories throughout it, but. Uh, yeah. I think the story of David pouring out the water is, it's just really interesting. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking on it and I maybe should have spent some more, but um, we know that this water represents maybe the, the blood of, of his mighty men that they put at risk. And so he didn't see himself as worthy 
of of receiving it and he poured it out before God. And so, I mean, maybe we can compare that to David's future where, you know, when he pours out something that is given to him by sacrifice here, later we will say see him take things that don't belong to him and others are forced to sacrifice because of that. Yeah, and and just a reminder, I mean, Samuel introduces these collection of people as people who are in distress, people who are in debt, and people who are bitter in soul. Uh, and so these become David's um, mighty men. And um, yeah, the, the Chronicler definitely has a bit of a different you take on them. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and maybe this um, is playing up uh, some of the, the deeds that they did. But um, there's certainly a change from this ragtag group that David started with to their their play out as his, as his army, as his uh, people people that are going to uh, take over uh, Israel and uh, Judah. Yeah. It's kind of a reflecting on like, these were the glory days in Israel. There's joy in Israel, you know, unity is restored and there's full promise and possibility in Israel. Um, Samuel's brought up again and we love Samuel. He was kind of that spiritual centering for so long and the word of God returned to Samuel. Um, it's just a really kind of exciting time to read about all of this. And in the end of the chapter, we see like all these different tribes all started coming together, um, including, yeah, people from Benjamin's tribe, which would have been like almost the outcasts in some of the yeah. history. And so, so there's some unity that's being portrayed uh, by the chronicler here. And so uh, they decide to go get the ark, uh, which happens in both this book and in uh, Samuel. And uh, it's important to remember the last time we saw the ark, what was happening is uh, the Philistines had captured it. Uh, the, the Israelites had gotten it back. But at the same time, when they got it back, they decided to like just open it and look inside. And and, and because of that, there was all sorts of um, like, there was judgment. judgment. Yeah, yeah. There was judgment because of that. And um, it seemed like there was no reverence, fear sort of honor, all that kind of stuff that should come with the very box that's meant to represent the presence of God. And so um, the Ark has sort of been in remission, kind of been in hiding uh, during this time, uh, and now they're bringing it to town. So just important to remember, that was the last story. It's like not quite honoring, not quite revering uh, what the presence of the Ark is supposed to represent. So yeah. when we get to the story of the carrying the Ark, I, I think that that's a bit of a play out here too. Uh, they're, they're carrying it. Uh, we find out that there's this guy named Uzzah. Um, it's, it's important too to note that later on, we'll find out that David makes sure that only Levites are carrying the Ark. So it's a possibility that Uzzah himself's not a Levite, which he shouldn't be carrying the Ark to begin with. And not only that, but he touches it. And so, um, which was Going back to the Torah, like they had this whole system with poles and stuff like that, so you would never touch the ark. Uh, and so there's all this, like, not totally knowing either the law or not having the right reverence for the ark, all that kind of playing out. That because it seems like when you read those story, you're like, well, he was just trying to keep it from falling on the ground. It doesn't seem that bad. You do feel but, a little bad for him at the beginning. But, but yeah. at the same time, understanding, like, okay, what was the last thing that happened to the ark? What the ark supposed to represent? All this kind of stuff that, um, that that it makes a little more sense to go, okay, like this is a holy representation of the presence of a holy God. And so um, to, to, to heighten that, uh, particularly in this moment, seemed important, uh, particularly for uh, the writers to, to cover this history. Uh, and David seems to learn his lesson. He sort of like freaks out about it. He's mad about Uzzah's death, but he's also afraid of the Ark in some ways and, and has it not brought into the city right away. And so there's some lesson that seems to have been learned mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, a lesson for us is that God does, he looks at our heart and the attentions of our heart, but also there's a a requirement and expectation for obedience and holiness, which, you know, is met through Christ. But we still see that even a genuine act 
if it is disobedient, it's still harmful. I mean, think of the golden calf way back when, like Israel was trying to worship God. They just did it inappropriately. Um, So for us, compared to Uzzah, our, our consequence is not immediate death in that case, but forgiveness because Christ took that punishment for our irreverence. Uh, we don't need to fear mistaken disobedience because Christ has made a way for us to come into relationship with him. Yeah. And we hear about David having a bunch of wives, uh, which once again, like this is something Deuteronomy has told the kings not to do. Um, and, and at the same time, he's also taking a stuff from the king of Tyre, the king of Tyre is giving it to him. But even time-wise, like in Ezekiel, the king of Tyre becomes this representation, interpreta- like how it's interpreted around Satan. He's certainly not mm-hmm. a positive figure in Ezekiel. Um, and and so um, this whole move to Jerusalem, the taking of wives, the taking of stuff from the king of Tyre, like I don't know if the chronicler is trying to be intentional to, to set up David, but like that's not – that's not the most in line with Torah either. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's an interesting discussion as it goes of, of why include these details. And so, but he does. Yeah. I, I think one other interesting thing that at least it was interesting to me is that Nathan, David's son is the one who's included in the genealogy of Christ. And I guess I kind of expected it to be Solomon, but it wasn't. So when you read through those genealogies in Matthew, it's Nathan. So the Philistines get uh, defeated. So uh, we, we see this attack when they first moved to Jerusalem um, and David wins. So he listens to the Lord. He doesn't go to the witch of Endor or anything else. He, he simply listens uh, to God and wins that way. So even if the chronicler is presenting a, a negative story in the previous section with the wise, and he may or may not be, but um, we still see these positive moments of David trusting in the Lord, moving forward, um, and, and he wins. And the surrounding nations start taking notice of this new king. Yeah. And so the arcs finally brought in. Uh, they finally so seen. I want to say what's ahead. cool about this part is that, you know, like when Saul messed up with the ark, he just like forgot it all. He abandoned it and left it. David was not going to give up. He was like, I still want to worship Yahweh. I still want to do this right. So it's kind of like he stepped back and he took his time and then actually read the law and figured out what needed to be done. And he was like, okay, we're going to bring the ark back right. But it's just a comparison to Saul who just left it. When it didn't work out, he just abandoned it altogether. And David's not doing that. No, not at all. And, and we get a sort of a reset of the Levites and their roles. We get appointment of chief priests. All, all this stuff is like, um, and and Sarah and I were talking about it right before the podcast of like this this reset in some ways mm-hmm. of the, the Moses establishment of the tabernacle and um, the priestly system and stuff like that. And now David having these kind of overlap moments of, of reestablishing all that kind of stuff. It's almost like we're starting over. We press the reset button. Here we go. Yeah. It's not like a new creation, but it is like, a, okay, this is our chance Israel to be what you were supposed to be back in the days of Moses or it was the awesome days of Noah. They have a big old party around it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's times for reverence, but there's times for celebration. And, uh, and, and those two things can be the same, but at the same time, it's not solemn. It is uh, a, a total celebration. Um, and then I imagine like <laughs> making a movie and there's like the wide shot of all the celebration and then the camera kind of zooms in and, and sees the face of, of Mikael or Michael. I, don't, I never know how to pronounce her name. Me um, and, and she's just looking bitter, like <laughs> off in the distance. It's like um, a soap opera cliffhanger. Yeah. It's like, wait until tomorrow. <laughs> but it's legitimate. I mean, she's, Saul's daughter. So David's killed her dad and uh, she had been married to somebody else, but then kind of gets dragged back into her marriage with David. And so like, uh, it's I, basically I, I understand power, her emotions. Yeah. Uh, so no, but we're going to see it play it out as it goes in another week or so. So, uh, but let's jump uh, into the new Testament then. 
So certainly, hopefully you guys feel the weight of reading through uh, this whole section. Uh, and, and we hear more about Pilate. And it does seem like Pilate's main motivation um, is political uh, through this. Like he's worried that this riot is coming and this riot is just starting. And so he's like, fine, if you guys want him, you guys can have him. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me in this initial section is this repetition of the word blood. And everyone interacts with the blood of Jesus in a different way. You know, the Romans, Pilate representing the Romans, he he washes his hands. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And then the Jews are saying, this man, Jesus' blood be on us and our children. And yet we look at, at those of us who are believers and we are covered by his blood, but not not in the form of judgment, in the form of cleansing. Yeah. And Matthew is giving his Jewish audience no more reason to hate the Romans. Like he, he's, he's going out of his way to record how Pilate's interacting here to go like, look, like it wasn't the Romans that killed Jesus. <laughs> like no. it, it was the chief priests, it was the elders, it was that crowd that ultimately the blood was on their hands. And so um, he, he's being clear to, to absolve a little bit in some ways, uh, Rome and, and Pilate here. And he gets flogged, he gets scourged. Um, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you've seen probably a, a fairly accurate representation of probably what that was like. Um, it was whipping with cat of nine tails with shards of bone and stuff in it. It would just rip the flesh off your back. Um, Jewish law limited it to 39. The Romans would have done it even more if they could. Uh, but uh, that's what was happening to Jesus in this moment. Uh, and, uh, it was pretty common, uh, for some people before the cross. Yeah. And then Matthew talks a lot about the different people who mocked Jesus and it's a, Chris made a point. Well, I'll let you get there, but the irony. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's some mocking initially of, of the soldiers here, uh, who, um, really put on this sort of Royal show. And as I talked about in Luke, there's definitely some overlap in all the gospels mark the most, but, um, of Caesar versus Jesus. And some of these, some of these pieces that the, the Romans enact here of putting him in the praetorium, giving him these various symbols saying, uh, Ave Yeshua, which they would have said, Ave Caesar, hail Caesar versus hail Jesus and all those sort of things. But, um, the symbolism still would have worked for all crowds, the, the purple of a King, mm-hmm. the staff, a crown, all that, that all crowds would have understood, uh, the sort of like, um, mocking nature to his kingship and he's suffering. I and mean, this is just a nonstop story of suffering from here on out. Yeah. And so we see that, uh, and it's a fulfillment. I mean, each of these moments is just a fulfillment, whether he's being silent before his accusers, whether he's suffering and being spit on and mocked, all of it's there. Yeah. And I mean, of course, like we've talked about so much of that is, is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, whether it's this idea of the suffering servant um, offering his back to be beaten and his face to be spat upon or being crucified with criminals or even in Psalms, which you guys read in Psalm 22, which we'll talk about later. Yep. And then we get the crucifixion itself. Um, Jesus is so weak at this point, he can't even carry his own cross. And just because I like the visual imagery being kind of accurate, it's very likely that Jesus was carrying just the cross beam of the cross. Um, that's likely not um, a T-shaped uh, item, uh, but uh, it still would have been heavy. It still would have had a lot of weight on it. And for someone that just had their back whipped 39 times uh, would have been painful. And uh, he was probably pretty exhausted at this point. Um, it doesn't even seem like he fell asleep. So, um, and then he's given wine. Uh, I think the the one given, I don't think it was given by the Roman soldiers to make him feel better. I think it was um, ultimately to continue to mock him and continue to make it worse. Uh, mixed with the other gospel writers, I think that's, that's pretty clear that they're not trying to alleviate his pain in any way. Um, yeah. And you know, they're, they're demanding that Jesus 
like show himself, like prove yourself to us. If you're the son of God, come down off of this cross. But it was because he was the son of God that he stayed on the cross. And how often do we try to demand something of God, believing that there's only one solution or one answer to what we're asking for. But like in this case, you don't necessarily know the full story. Um, and maybe death will come before we see the fruition of that request. Yeah. And there's, yeah the, the whole mocking not only are they accurate in some of the things that they say in calling him the king of the Jews and son mm-hmm. of God and stuff like that, but like they're saying, why don't you save yourself by coming down? And and yes, the very irony is like he's saving you by not coming down. And, um, and, and just I think that's there's some ironic things that will continue to play out, but I think that's there of like the very things that they're mocking with. If they got those, they would never actually experience the salvation that Jesus would offer. And so, right. um, yeah. And and uh, I, we haven't covered a lot of the different cultural norms, but um, but this this certainly would be written to a Jewish culture that would have been a little bit more honor shame. And so um, there's so much about the cross too that's meant to portray that of like even the thieves are mocking Jesus, like he is he is below even the ones who had actually committed the crimes in terms of um, the the honor versus shame moment. Like he is at the bottom rung of that all. And then we see the earthquakes and all this other stuff to. to a whole nother culture around power and stuff like that. And so um, we see all those things, no matter what sort of worldview you're coming from, there's something about the whole crucifixion scene, uh, whether it's understanding his death as a substitute for our sins, understanding Jesus being brought low to be brought ultimately back a high into honor or understanding Jesus being the one who has power over even the elements of this world. Like all of those are playing out really, really well uh, in the story. Yeah. And then the death, uh, he does cry out, um, and uh, it's likely uh, they they hear uh, Eloi and Elio. Um, Those have kind of similar, particularly in Hebrew or in Aramaic, pretty similar sounds. So they think, oh, he's just crying out to Elijah. So they're finally listening to him say something, and they just think he's crying out to Elijah. Um, But he dies around the same time that uh, sheep would have been sacrificed in the temple. Mm there's an earthquake, there's an eclipse. We even have Roman historians that uh, speak about something supernatural happening around that time. Um, and uh, and there's a curtain that's torn. Um, and so we've, we've covered the whole building of the tabernacle. We, we've covered some of the meaning of that curtain and that separation between hum- humanity and God and there still being that tension and, and, and Jesus as the right blood sacrifice, the true blood sacrifice has finally taken that separation and blown it apart. Um, literally <laughs> through an earthquake. And so, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's so many significant things that happen in the narrative in this moment. Right. And so like, re- I remember this component for, for now and understanding, but when you get to Hebrews, when we get to Hebrews or if you've read Hebrews before, it's talks a lot about this idea of the curtain as well. Yeah. And then we have this weird, really weird little section of the resurrection of, of people of some sort. But yeah, there, there's there's a lot of theories around that. I understand if you're reading it, you're like, okay, that seems a little weird. Um, <laughs> How come I remember talking through that? Easter. I did a Easter Monday night lesson and we talked about it a little bit. But um, one of the earliest Greek translations, and, and the word resurrection is is 
usually anastasis. The word here is agiris, which also means to like raise up or to come up out of. Um, and, and and I think this translation, the Greek this Greek codex, probably makes more sense in the in the context that the tombs were laid open and many bodies of those buried were tossed upright. Remember, there's just an earthquake. In this position, they projected from the graves and were seen by many who passed by that place on their way back to the city after his lifting up. I'm referring to Jesus's crucifixion. So I think that's probably more what Matthew's after, as I said, there's a lot of theories. There's a lot of parsing this out. I don't think it's the resurrection, a true resurrection, because Jesus is our first, like, firstborn yeah. of the resurrection. So um, it, it's a little confusing. But uh, if you were caught up on that, I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. And then um, this this ends with a statement of the centurion saying, surely this is the son of God. And remember, like, this is it. And Matthew is pointing out, like, this centurion is proving everything I have ever tried to argue through this whole book. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, you know, he's like, sorry, Jews, you you weren't the ones who got it, but it was a centurion who got it or these, you know, women hanging out outside. Yeah. Going back to sort of something we covered at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew definitely writes from an outsider's perspective and highlights Jesus's work with outsiders. And um, the end of the story, uh, we sort of get the centurion and these women who are uh, the, the the real witnesses to what is true in this moment or, or witnesses to the cross. And then we're going to see particularly uh, these women uh, at the resurrection as well. Yeah. But Jesus is buried um, at a request from Pilate. Usually the criminals would hang on the cross for a little while for birds and everything else to, to pick at their bodies. But um, Joseph, this sort of unnamed person until now uh, is willing to um, put the body in a grave that his family owns. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but it's a like basically a virgin tomb. It's an unused tomb. It um, that would clarify any possibilities that some other person came out of the tomb or uh, anything along those confusions. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's important uh, to play that out because I think Matthew is going to deal with any accusations of wrongdoing here uh, in a moment. And it's fulfillment of prophecy that it's a rich man's tomb, as Isaiah 53 mm-hmm. talks about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting, like the chief priests and the elders, they're still like, they're super afraid of Jesus, even though he's died, as far as they understand, they're still afraid of him. So they're still doing whatever they can to make sure that his legacy doesn't live on. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want some movement to get started here, even if it started on a false premise of, of his resurrection. So they're going out of his way to make sure that no one could steal the body, that he can't just... Maybe he wasn't totally dead and gets back up and sneaks out. Like there's, there's no room for that. Yeah. Um, and then we get the resurrection, which has some apocalyptic kind of language to it with this angel and lightning and clothes as white as snow, all this kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, there's also some brilliant wordplay, I think by Matthew where there was an earthquake, but then the men themselves, these guards also shook. It was like a similar word. And, um, Jesus came out of the tomb, but the men were like dead men. And so, um, yeah, they should be in the tube almost. And so, uh, there's some, there's some beauty to that story. Um, but it's, it's just this fantastic moment for, mm-hmm. uh, this angel to be there and to ultimately address women first of all the people that could be witnesses to the resurrection, uh, the least likely and the most untrusted culturally, uh, witness would have been, would have been through women. And yet, um, once again, Matthew reminding us of Jesus's work, uh, amongst, um, the, 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 outsiders. the outsiders. Yeah. yeah it's good. So, um, but the angel tells the disciples or tells the women to go tell the disciples. So the first Easter sermon spoken here by the women mm-hmm. and, um, and that the, he'll meet them up in Galilee and we'll cover that in a second. Yeah. 
So the guards kind of freak out that he's gone. They don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, they, they've been terrible at their job but to them. It's like, well, we had one job to guard this tomb and the guy's gone. And so um, they're probably worried about how Pilate's going to respond to that and all that. And and the chief priests, just to keep driving home how terrible the chief priests are, they're like, well, we'll pay you off to, to come up with this lie. And if Pilate gives you any trouble, we'll take care of him too. And so um, this is the influence, the sort of like I said, mafia-like influence mm-hmm. that this initial group probably had. Yeah. <clears throat> and then uh, the 11 gather. So at some point, Peter might have been restored somewhere between here and this story. Um, but Matthew includes uh, the statement that some doubted. And and there's so much encouragement to me <laughs> that the disciples, these 11 men, come to the resurrected Jesus who is about to commission them. And there's still some struggle. There's still some doubts. There's still some uncertainty. They're moving forward in obedience. But they're like, I don't yeah. I still don't know. I don't understand this. I don't know what's coming next. Jesus, are you really this? Um, there seems to be all that in the story. Yeah. I hope it's comforting. It's okay to doubt. I mean, if the disciples did it, we can do it, you know? And and the irony of, of Jesus' the statement about all authority. I mean, he, he culturally, every to every regular onlooker, have just watched what looks like someone who has no authority over anything be crucified and put into the tomb. But yet Jesus's resurrection is ultimately the sign of the truth of the all authority. Like Caesar is going to die the chief priests are going to die. Everybody else in authority is going to die and stay in the grave. But the one who has authority over all things, heaven and heaven and earth, and particularly death and all that kind of stuff too, is the one who's standing there, who's conquered those things and says, I, I have all authority. Yeah. And, and that becomes a really important opening statement. I think most of us know the Great Commission is go make disciples. But the first part and the last part of the Great Commission are probably the most important parts of the Great Commission that the one we are making disciples of is the one with all authority over all things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so, he will yeah. be with us at all times. And this idea of authority, you'll notice a lot later on in the new Testament when we read Paul's writings. I mean, they come up in probably every book he writes or every letter he writes. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, we're commissioned. I mean, Matthew leaves us with this to do three things, make disciples, mm-hmm. baptize and teach. But, um, yeah, well, I could talk about make disciples first. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I think sometimes we think make converts, and and conversion is part of the discipleship. I think that's part of it, and I think probably actually the word baptism probably represents the sort of make converts more than make disciples. But um, it, it's 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 if the picture that we have in scripture and even culturally contextually is to spend some time investing in people to teach them and show them what Jesus is and 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 that continues to to draw them into following him more to loving him more to be like his be like their their master their rabbi their lord more and more and more and like that's discipleship it's a whole process it's not just go find a bunch of people who don't follow Jesus and win them in some kind of conversion moment. Like it's so much broader than that and deeper than that. Um, But we are to baptize and that does include repentance and turning from Mm -hmm. living for one kingdom to another, washing away an old self to becoming a new self and in all those pictures uh, as well and to teach. And so um, we don't bring people on a pilgrimage to meet God. Like, we ultimately teach them about God and um, that that's that becomes part of how they become disciples and in order to teach we have to know what he said and and so that's why hopefully you're listening to this podcast to continue to know what God said to have clarity around it and be able to teach others and so um, that is that is the major components of this whole uh, thing and we do it to the ends of the earth 
Yeah, and for Matthew to emphasize, Matthew, the Jewish tax collector who wrote this book to Jews, to end the book not with the ascension, but with the Great Commission is really, really significant. I mean, this is it. This is this is to be our response for everything we've read in Matthew, and this was to be the response of those initial readers as well. This man was the son of God. He was the Jewish Messiah. And now my response to it is to live a life of making disciples under the full authority we have in Christ, knowing he is with us at all times. And so again, I mean, it comes back to this idea for us as Christians, like it is not a hobby. It's not something we do on Sunday or we do when we open our Bible and do our Bible reading plan. It is a way that we live our lives and we will not do it perfectly. We will doubt, we will make mistakes, but this is what we live for is making disciples and telling people this good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. In yep. our going, we do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I said we'll talk about why they end up in Galilee. I have a theory on that. Um, so, um, Galilee is a pretty large region. And um, and one of the last things Jesus did with his disciples is take them up to Caesarea Philippi, which uh, we had the whole like gates of hell conversation and stuff like that. And um, the transfiguration is probably really nearby. Um, so there's debates around uh, Mount Hermon versus Mount Tabor. And um, I tend to go into the Mount Hermon uh, camp, uh, that, that, that which is right next door to Caesarea Philippi. And if that's the case, Jesus might be there meeting him with his disciples where he just told them, like, look, like, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against this. And, and, and not only that, but, but as, as we talked about the interpretation of that story, like Jesus looking into this pagan Gentile world, speaking about the building of his church and, and, and that church going forth, I would argue into this pagan Gentile world. And, and for, for him to be there with his disciples far away from Jerusalem to go, okay, like I told you, this is how we're going to build my church. So now go and make disciples of all of the people of all the nations. Um, he's not building it. In, in the safety of some other community is going forth from here. Um, and he leaves them with that. Uh, and, and as Sarah just pointed out, there's, there's no ascension in Matthew, which is great too. I always picture in my mind, he says this great commission and then sort of floats up, but um, we're, we get acts for that uh, in another part. But um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what Sarah just said was, was so, so true. Uh, so final thoughts or was, that's some of your so, final thoughts. I mean, that was most of my final thoughts. I will say, I think I finished Matthew. If you've listened to us throughout the process, it's been a super hard book for me to study. And I think I finished like knowing better how much I don't know about Matthew. Um, so I don't know that that's discouraging as much as it is maybe encouraging that like what I can gain on a surface level understanding is still awesome, but there's so much more to know. But yeah. The big theme for me is understanding just more about the kingdom of God and how upside down and backwards it is compared to our world right now, what practically it looks like um, and what it means to be an ambassador for Christ or a representative of Christ, one who's sent out, who lives underneath the rule and law of the kingdom of God rather than of this world. Yeah. And, and some of my thoughts, especially going through a little bit of the deeper dive that we did this time, like Matthew, maybe Hebrews. And probably Revelation um, are the books that we are 
the most disconnected from culturally. Uh, some of the other books are written to a more Roman Greco audience, which would be more have some foundation in Western in, in some of the West that we live in and how we think about things. But we're not people that are deeply steeped in the Old Testament where we've memorized it. We understand rabbinic teaching, rabbinic methods, understanding all of that kind of stuff that Matthew's audience would have really understand. And so I think there's some ways that we approach this book and we don't catch how layered or complex um, the Old Testament allusions and references and all that all around. And hear me, that doesn't mean that you can't have a surface reading of Matthew that is still accurate and true and help you understand Jesus more. But I think there's a depth to Matthew that um, gets a little bit lost on us um, because we're not first century Jews. That um, that requires a little more work, and it's worth it to put in the work, but a little more work to get there. Um, and, and so, yeah, Matthew, I think, is one that we could probably spend our whole lives diving, diving deeper in, um, just as much as understanding apocalyptic literature or Hebrews or something like that. But um, yeah, there's such a beauty too, though, of how Matthew tells and presents and, and the shocking ways that he as an outsider is telling these stories. I think it's so, so good. So yeah. let's get back to Acts. Yeah. Uh, we kind of pick up. Hopefully we haven't forgotten too much about what's going on. But uh, just to remind you, Paul's sort of on the tail end of his second missionary journey. Um, and uh, the first one kind of snuck into Turkey just a little bit, went back uh, to from Greece and to to. Uh, Israel. Uh, this one kind of made a northern trek through Turkey, uh, head through Philippi and, and Athens and some of these Greek cities. And now he's heading back and makes a little pit stop in the city of Ephesus that he didn't get to go to the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's important to know Ephesus is a legitimate city. Um, this is one of the largest cities outside of Rome. And so um, for Paul, he's probably excited to go to a city like this and to be able to, to see what happens. And it seems like there's already some movement going on there uh, that had nothing to do with Paul's planting. Paul didn't plant the church here. And so, um, but yet he comes and visits and uh, leaves behind two of his kind of uh, protégés, disciples maybe, uh, in Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. And at some point he cuts his hair. And so uh, whether Paul was a Nazarene or not is a good debate, but um, it seems like Luke seems to include that information. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of Mm -hmm. vows that don't involve that. And the lack of details from Luke seems to assume that you might assume that it's a Nazarene vow. So um, yeah, it seems like Paul hasn't lost his Jewishness. Like he certainly, there's certainly a move to understand themselves, the Christians as different from uh, the non-Jesus faith Jews. Um, but, um, at some point Paul also still sees himself as a Jew who believes in the Jewish Messiah of Jesus. And so, um, yeah, but he heads back home to Antioch to his hometown. Yeah. Which is fun to hear him. And they, you know, they want him to stay and he's like, no, I've got to keep going. And then uh, we don't know how much time passes, but Paul will set out on a uh, third missionary journey here. Uh, We just hear kind of that he sets out and then the scene sort of changes uh, to Ephesus um, about this uh, man named Apollo, who's charismatic, a great teacher. Um, It's hard to know exactly what Apollo knew. Uh, We know he knows about the baptism of John. Uh, The details of how much he knows about Jesus seem to be super vague. Um, It seems to be not enough. Uh, according to Apollo, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, that they need to correct, and 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 eventually he will come to debate the Jews after this point. But um, yeah, it's it's um, it's we're introduced to this um, to this guy who's going to come up in some of the letters mm-hmm. of Paul and stuff like that as well, uh, who is 
seemingly, seemingly charismatic. Um, and, uh, we also see Priscilla and Aquila, a man and a woman, uh, help teach, help lead, uh, Apollo, uh, to, to the truth about who Jesus actually is. Yeah. So I think what's cool about what's happening here is, is we start to see kind of the delegation of leadership, um, and I mean, we've seen it already. Jesus delegated authority yeah. to the disciples and to others, but Paul has raised people up and now there are things that are happening, at least that are write it, written about. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul's not there for part of it, but people are coming to know the Lord and the church in Ephesus is growing and Priscilla and Aquila know and understand the gospel of Christ enough to teach Apollos. And um, so it's just cool to see how we're seeing spiritual generational discipleship happening. Yeah, here in the there's, book of Acts. there's none of the 12 and not Paul. And yet, this, this church is growing and yeah. expanding. And so, yeah, it's so good. All right. Uh, psalm 22, only one this week. Yeah. So, it's clearly a Messianic psalm. Jesus Jesus cries out the first verse of this. But I think what's cool about it is if you read, which I hope you did, the whole thing, it moves from kind of desperation to victory. And that that is the road, that is the path Jesus walked in his crucifixion. Um, there was this moment of incredible grief, but there's also promised rest and victory at the end um, for families of all the nations. So we know how it's going to end because we know how it ended for Christ. Yeah. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed when the Psalms, we try to make it, but when the Psalms really line up with your mm-hmm. reading um, and this Psalms just quoted a ton throughout the gospels uh, and, and yeah, this picture of the suffering servant to the victorious servant. Um, it's just, that I mean, that is the death and crucifixion of Jesus yeah. uh, and, and to uh, ultimately his resurrection. So it's just great. Uh, next week, what should we look out for? So Old Testament, we've talked a lot about covenants, um, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic, is that how you say it, covenant? Yeah. Anyway, we're going to read about the Davidic covenant this week. We're going to actually read about it twice. So I just pay attention to God making promises and making a covenant with David. What does it represent? Um, and what do the different books of Second Samuel versus First Chronicle emphasize in that covenant? Um, and then in the New Testament, I would do a little bit of study on Ephesus and the culture back there. Uh, there is a lot of time devoted to, in Paul's ministry and others' ministry to Ephesus. And so um, see what context you can find because it'll impact how you read and understand a lot of um, Acts and other parts of the Bible. Yeah. And for me, well, we're going to move into some talk about the temple uh, for the next couple of weeks. And um, it's, it's always interesting. I'm always a little bit torn around um, the initial desire to build the temple from David, like his motivations, and then even God's initial response in both of those stories. And so as we encounter them, both uh, in Chronicles and we'll encounter them in Samuel too, like think about what, God is saying in the initial response and, and whether or not um, he, he's, he, or just the attitude uh, of, of God in, in the response initially. Um, we're eventually going to see God certainly dwell in the temple and be a part of the temple. But uh, I think his initial response to, to the request or the desire um, is, is interesting. And I hadn't really thought about it until probably maybe this past year. Uh, and then the New Testament, uh, yes, there is a, a big focus on Ephesus. But um, I, think it's, I think one of those first things we find out about Ephesus is it's just this upheaval that happens of the gospel going forth. So like, as we look at that, see how like when the kingdom comes into a city and starts changing the culture, like how is it affecting the city? Like what is really causing the upheaval that we read about? Like all those sort of things I think are really important uh, for us to see um, how, how I think um, the gospel can transform a culture around it. Um, sometimes for the good, sometimes for um, 
what would be perceived as the bad for the people in charge. And so, um, yeah, look for that as you read that story. And I think that's it. Thanks, Thanks everybody.